Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Emil Vasilev. Emil is the Vice President of Finance at Hero Health, a digital in-home healthcare company which helps members manage their daily medication needs. Emil joined Hero Health from Total Brain, a neuroscience-based mental health company where he oversaw all financial and investor relations aspects of the business. Prior to that, Emil held several roles in private equity and investment banking, including at Corsair Capital, a global growth and private equity firm with $12 billion in assets under management, where he invested in financial and technology businesses in the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Emil sits on the board of Sky Schools, a premier social-emotional learning program that has impacted 111,000-plus students, educators, and parents from 212 schools across the U.S. He is also a meditation instructor for the Art of Living Foundation, UN Educational NGO with presence in more than 155 countries focused on health, sustainable development, conflict resolution, and disaster relief. Emil has a BA in economics from Amherst College. Emil, thank you very much for being my guest today. It's my pleasure, Megan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're a finance executive, an advisor, and an angel investor with a history of working across VC-backed and public companies, private equity and growth investing, M&A, and investment banking. And today we'll be discussing your story and learning from the experiences you've gained along the way. And I'm excited to hear from you. So let's get started. Let's do it. All right. First, and as always, let's start with you, your story, and how it is that you got to where you are today. Wow. that's um, <laughs> That could be a one-hour <laughs> long answer or a five-minute one, but uh, I'll, I'll give you the, the cliff notes. Um, originally, I'm from Bulgaria. I grew up there and came to the U.S. for university. Uh, was lucky enough to get a full ride at a place called Amherst College up in Massachusetts and um, ended up in New York working on Wall Street after school. Um, did investment banking at Barclays, focusing on um, the financial services sector and uh, then did private equity for a couple of years. Um, ended up saying no to Wharton for an MBA. My my family, my mother in particular, was literally crying on the phone when I told her that. <laughs> um, and at that point, I decided to pursue um, operating roles in mostly in tech startups. So I've been doing that ever since over the last six, seven years. I'm just curious, why did you say no to Wharton? That's a big decision. Um, yeah, it was. In- it was a. It was a. You know, it was one of those things where deep inside I knew business school was not the best path for me. And I was just more excited about um, being an operator and actually learning how to build a business from the ground up. And, you know, there was an opportunity that came up um, at the time to work with a friend of a friend. at a portfolio company of TPG Growth. So that was my transition from the pure finance into more of an operating role. And um, yeah, it just 
life kind of happened at that point. Yeah. So as you look back on your career, are there stories or career moves that stand out in your mind as being a turning point for you? It's a good question. I think that was certainly uh, a turning up, you know, that whole experience was a turning point because um, I think a lot of us in finance, especially after a couple of years, um, are on a certain track or trajectory where it's really hard to pivot because the in the terms that the money that we make and the economic terms are positive and it's hard to just you know say no and yeah. or pivot somewhere else where there's more risk uh the golden handcuffs yeah um and so yeah i think at that point in my life i just felt like I had to, I just had that feeling that I had to pursue something else. And if I were aligned with what I'm actually interested in, the success, the material comfort will come. And today you're the VP at Hero. Um, Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So can you tell us a little bit about your role at Hero? Sure. So um, my role there is to, oversee all aspects of finance and accounting and um, fundraising and investor relations. Um, The company is um, in digital health, more specifically in remote monitoring and medication management. And so we have about 150 people um, in the US and then in Europe as well, and in Asia. you know, some people there. And um, yeah, the focus is um, on helping people who take five plus medications um, to help with their adherence uh, and help their caregivers and doctors um, be in the loop on what's happening. That's a very big need these days, I'm sure, and, and probably growing by the day. Yes, absolutely. There's um we recently became eligible for Medicare. The the whole product did so that opened, you know, a lot of doors for us to really access in a very direct way the people who need this the most. And what attracted you to this role at this company? Um well, I think it was a combination of different factors. Um I had been in healthcare prior. Um, I was at a mental health company before this. And um, I had uh, friends in common with the founder CEO um, who reached out. And um, I liked the fact that they uh, they were relatively early stage um, when I joined so that there was a lot of opportunity to, to contribute to shape the actual company. Um, and also benefit from an upside. So all these factors together, and importantly, I think the the people um, looking back um, when I was interviewing, what stood out to me at here was that um, the people were both competent who I talked to, as well as humble, and that's a rare combination. It truly uh, is. So that that is what uh, kind of 
sealed the deal for me. And talk to us about your framework for effectively managing risk and making informed financial decisions. Yeah, so mm, this varies by the stage of development of a business. In, in the case of Hero and then other companies I've I've worked with, sort of between seed and call it series C um, stage of growth, there's from a financial perspective, there's a few critical components to risk management. One is obviously cash burn and runway, uh, which you know, as finance professionals, we're directly responsible for. Um, another is operational efficiency. Um, and that supports burn in some ways, but also it ensures that uh, operationally the business can keep up with whatever top line growth it's experiencing or can even enable more top line growth. So that's the second layer. And, and the third is just pure, you know, uh, call it growth finance. So how do you, um, in a nimble manner, um, mold the finance function and all, all of its aspects, including accounting, fundraising, FP&A model, et cetera, to fit the needs of a high growth company where you know, within three to six months, you could have doubled in size uh, from a revenue perspective or employee count. And how do you kind of keep up with that? So those three aspects, um, I would say, are most important. And how do you balance the risk that must be necessary in a startup environment with the controls that are necessary for finance to succeed? Yeah. So in, and, you know, I, I think an example, a very direct example of that is our um, companies, you know, when they reach call it 10 million of ARR, depending on the circumstances, of course, may require an audit, a financial audit, right? An audited account. So through that process, which I've um, gone through a number of times, um, what I have found is that, yes, of course, it's great to establish all the proper checks and balances, and that's a requirement, and you know, you, you do that. Um, and at the same time, you have to be commercial about your outlook. And what that means, what I mean by that is administratively excelling at everything is not necessarily the best use of uh, a business's resources and your own time and your team's time. So doing, um, I wouldn't say doing the the bare minimum uh, because that, that's, that may not sort of hold when, when something changes, uh, but doing sufficient um, administrate from an administrative perspective, doing doing a sufficient amount and um, kind of uh, leaving some room for improvement for for the quarters and years to come is one outlook that um, that I find valuable for a growing company, especially. That's great advice. So 
Can you talk to us about the role of self-reflection and continuous improvement in your framework for peak performance? Sure. So um, in my personal life, and maybe I'm sure actually a lot of us can relate to that, especially in finance, when where we're sort of go, go, go all the time and we're extra competitive and we want to win. Um, what happens is, yes, we can achieve things sometimes very quickly, sometimes slowly over time, slower than we want it. But in the process of this achievement, what happens is that there's a hidden task, tax. And that hidden tax is usually on our health, whether that's physical health or mental health. And you could include relationships and family in that bucket of mental health. Um, and we pay that as individuals, as people. The company doesn't pay that. The company benefits Shareholders benefit from our, you know, hard work, which is great. We get paid for it. There's an exchange. But this this is an externality, a negative externality that we as individuals incur. And it's we're the only ones that are actually able to police that and to set proper boundaries and also to set ourselves up for health rather than disease um, or lack of health. So at a high level in my personal life, and you know, this came up for me in a big way when I was just starting out in investment banking, when I was an analyst where, you know, working until 1 a.m. and uh, every day, and then being in my early 20s, uh, partying in, in New York City, on the weekends, between those two things, I was just burnt out after a year or two of doing that. Um, and I felt like something else had to happen in my life for me to actually continue to, <laughs> to live a happy, productive life. And that's when I turned my attention to mind-body practices, um, breath work and meditation especially, and also started watching certain aspects of my routine. And um, I'm happy to get more into, into that. There's a few different things that I watch out for. Uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I saw that you're a meditation teacher. Yes, yes, I am. So yeah, what what is it that we should be watching out for? I'm interested to know. Yeah, so... Um, there's um, different sources uh, for our energy on a daily basis, right? And the reason why it's important to look into that is that when we're low energy, we have all been there, right? We feel a certain way. We feel tired, exhausted, dejected. Even if a small thing comes up, a small challenge we we just get completely thrown off. And it's like, wow, really? I have to deal with this right now? You know, that's the attitude. Yep. Um, and then Sounds the familiar. Flip, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and the flip side of that is, okay, we're high energy, enthusiastic, energized, 
even a big challenge when when our energy is high seems very easy to overcome. We may we the attitude may be like, oh, I have no idea how I'm going to do it, but I'll just go through it. I'll do it. There that there is some valor in there, right? And so we've also experienced that. But at, in this day and age, with work from home and all the Zoom meetings and all the things we all want to accomplish, uh, personally and professionally, we oftentimes end up in the exhausted bucket. And if that happens, continues to happen over a long period of time, we get burnt out and we experience quarter-life crisis, midlife crisis, etc., where we start to question our choices in a very fundamental way. And it's really not fun, you know? Now, like 30 or 40% of people in America, adults in America, have symptoms of depression, right? Yeah. And so that's that's not, in my book, uh, the sign of the most developed nation in the country. That's not the sign in the world. That's not the sign of, you know, true progress. So in a very practical way, you know, what I, what I encourage people to look at and what I look at myself on a daily basis is four things. My sleep, and these are things we all know, but sometimes we just completely forget. So sleep, right? The right amount of sleep. If we sleep too long, we feel groggy. If we sleep too little, we also feel groggy and irritable. So the right quantity of sleep I also find that going to bed before 10 and sleeping through those hours of between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. is much more bang for my buck than even sleeping a longer time. To the point where I have even experimented with, you know, if I've had a lot of work and normally you know, I would stay up until midnight or 1 a.m. to finish it, I would put my pen down. 9.30, 10 o'clock, and then wake up really early at like 3 o'clock or 2.30 and then finish it in the early hours of the morning. Obviously, that's a that's an extreme thing, but that that's just to show that those hours between 10 and 2, which in modern neuroscience um, is now also discovering that that's, that's a very critical part of the night when the brain and the body recovers. Um, so that's important. Then food and drink is the second, right? And we all know how we feel after a heavy lunch versus a lighter, more nutritious lunch at 2.30 p.m. when the crash happens or doesn't. So that's, that's I would say, this, the second sort of source, main source of energy to watch out for. Then the third is the breath. This one is overlooked and... Um, the technique that I do on a daily basis and have been for 10 years now um, is taught by the Art of Living Foundation, a UN nonprofit. Um, and um, that is a form of rhythmic breathing that is very effective. And it's cited by the recent bestseller, New York Times bestseller, Breath, as the, if not one of the most uh, potent or powerful breathing techniques out there. So breath can be a very powerful source of energy. And if we know how to harness it in a matter of minutes, um, we can change our outlook 
shift our energy level, right? And and last piece to this framework is um, um, what I would call a calm, collected state of mind. You could call it a meditative state of mind. And that can actually be a source of real tangible energy. Um, An easy way to think about it is just remember a time when you spent an hour sitting or listening to someone uh, who was complaining to you, you know? And how do you feel then? That's the worst. Yeah, yeah. It's very unpleasant. Your body may not have moved for a full hour, but you just feel drained and exhausted, right? So this negativity can actually drain us. And watching out for that and instead replacing it with different things that can be uplifting, which we all do, right? For some people, spending time with family is is uplifting or reading a um, a novel or listening to a you know inspiring lecture or meditating. Uh, to me, that's sort of the most efficient way to get there. Because, you know, in the busy schedule, if I only have X amount of time for myself in the day, I know I can devote 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon and in the beginning to start my day. And then in the end to kind of clear the slate before I can spend time with family and friends. Um, I have found that that has just completely transformed the way I live. What about exercise? Yeah, totally. That I would put that in the same bucket where the benefit goes both to the body as well as the mind. You know, I think a lot of us nowadays, and I saw some recent stats around that, that the number one reason people exercise now is actually for mental health. Yeah. So to take a break, to let go of stress, et cetera. So totally on point. Yeah, there's so much negativity in the world. You're right, like surrounding yourself with with positive people and positive things is, um, yeah, a big source of of good energy. It seems like it's very easy these days to be bogged down by just everything that's around you that's just so negative. Yeah. So how do you adapt and evolve your framework over time as a company's growing to stay relevant? Yeah. So I think... From a from the point of view of a personal framework, so the things that we just mentioned, I think that's relevant regardless of workload, regardless of size. I think from the point of view of um, the actual to dos as a finance professional and you know the day job that you have, um, you know there is different things to optimize for different stages of a business. Um, you know, early on in the in the cycle, you know, you have to establish the processes, set the right expectations around budget, around expenses, really create a culture around it that, you know, in my experience, the best way to do it is just to create a culture of frugality uh, from the get-go where it's much easier not to spend money than to spend it and have to cut it later on. Um, So I think that's one important aspect that naturally evolves over time as as the company grows. But 
sort of the found starting with that as a foundational piece can can be very beneficial. Um, and just treating the company's money as your own money, right? That's not everyone can do it, but assuming a few things, including ownership um, structure and options and just just the overall cohesiveness of a culture exists, that is possible for people who are at the exec team level or anywhere in the company to really adopt. I think that ownership mentality is, is critical and sort is the other side of the coin uh, with sort of set setting a spending or budgeting framework. I think naturally as as a business goes through the ups and downs of you know of its growth cycle, it's important to know uh, when to grow and when to just go all out on growth versus when to um be very conservative and preserve either cash or you know uh preserve team's time uh for something else and with that with the second piece um obviously macro environment plays a big role availability of capital plays a big role uh, but also um uh, just whether you found product market fit um, you know, for us at Hero, for instance, we found a huge unlock in the business after we became eligible for Medicare. And in the months coming up to that, when we when we were expecting this new program to launch, um, we proactively decided to save our money on marketing and preserve it until we have this new thing going on where we could spend it much more efficiently. And I think many companies have been asking themselves the same question in this, in the last, call it 12 to 15 months of, do I, do I keep growing? Can I afford to keep growing at the same rate that I had been? And what is the optimal trade-off between unit economics on you know, the D2C or B2B side and my growth rate, right? Do I, do I need to grow? Do I, have I grown enough to warrant uh, investors being interested in me for the next fundraising round um, and trading that off with, am I going to have enough cash to last until I'm big enough to, to be of interest to investors? So I think that's, Depending on where a company is, that's uh, a second sort of important topic that comes up. Um, and, you know, I think related to that, and oftentimes in a business's later stages, optimization is what comes up as a third important sort of bucket of, uh, of things to watch out for is, you know, when a, a business is growing, there is an engine behind it. Now it's time to optimize it and really crank out on every lever possible, even, and, you know, squeeze out everything in terms of efficiency that can be squeezed out uh, in order to um, have a bit of a margin of safety uh, when it comes to things that you cannot control. So control the things that you can um, 
to such a degree to the maximum or optimum de um, degree. And then that buys you more cushion or more ability to deal with things that come up inevitably that you cannot control. And you mentioned creating a culture of frugality, but how do you foster, foster a culture of transparency, accountability, and collaboration within your team? And how does that contribute to a company's peak performance? I would say that that is um, one of the foundational layers of peak performance is trust. And trust to me is related to all these things that you mentioned, you know, transparency, accountability. And it starts from the top, right? It's that people notice, even if you're not, you know, if you're kind of saying the right things, but you're not actually doing them, people notice. And, you know, you may get away with it for some time, but after a while, it, you know, it becomes very apparent to to people, and that's not a formula for longer, medium to long term success. Uh, so I think you you walk the talk, right? I think that's an important aspect, and you and you behave like a normal human being, and put yourself in the shoes of the people you work with, and see if I'm them, would this be an interesting or good um, life supporting place to work at or not? And if not, can this be um, improved or for whatever reason, if it, if it cannot be, you know, then you figure out how to, how to live with it and kind of adjust around it or help people adjust around it. And how do you make sure that the company has the right resources and personnel to effectively manage finance, especially these days when talent is very scar scarce? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think um, what we've discovered in different companies is that um, nowadays with remote work, um, even on in uh, in the finance function, you can uh, work with people from around the world. Um, you can have, uh, you know, people on both the strategic finance side as well as the accounting side who are as capable, as hungry, if not more hungry, and uh, more cost-effective for the company to hire who are outside of the United States. So I think that's one. Um, and also within the United States, going to not, not only the main hubs for talent can be can be a good strategy because it's it's less competitive there, and so better talent can be available. Um, and also exploring hybrid, um, full time part time roles for you know that that can work for many organizations. I have found that um, with accounting and some strategic finance roles as well. Um, that uh, working with someone on a fractional basis can be very cost effective because you get access to a higher caliber of talent that you may not need on a full-time basis um, and you get that in a very cost effective way. So create you know those are to me the different puzzle pieces and figuring out the optimal 
sort of setup is up to you know the a particular organization's circumstances. Uh, but you know, I think it's um, there's a lot of uh, new developments in how finance and accounting works um, that are now available to all of us, especially since the pandemic. And can you discuss your experience with M and A and how that shaped your approach to financial decision making? Sure. So, the most experience. Um, I have with M&As from my days in private equity and investment banking. Um, there, um, I think one of the big lessons um, that is applicable to me now in an operating role is just the concept of cultural fit, which I think is more important the smaller an organization is. So cultural fit and alignment is oftentimes overlooked um, when synergies make sense, purchase price makes sense, you know, the different puts and takes of a deal make sense. This can get forgotten. And to me, that's sort of the other side of the coin uh, of the incentivization coin. So if you're going to, you know, aqua hire or buy a business, um, you're going to ensure that the key members stay on for the for a transitional period, but as part of that, um, aligning people culturally um, can be as important, um, right? And that's easier said than done. That's where it becomes an art, less of a science. But um, I think pre-screening for that from the get-go um, can save people a lot of headaches down the road. I'm just curious, are there any tools you use for screening? I know some companies have um, like cultural index surveys or predictive indexes. Is, is there anything that you guys are using? Yeah. Um, in, in different circumstances, I've used, you know, culture surveys that's less from an M&A point of view, but more of on a day-to-day operations point of view, culture sur- surveys on a regular basis, I think are a must-have, you know, as a finance or executive leadership and, and HR leadership, you really need to understand, you know, what people are thinking and set it up in a way that's truly fully anonymized and therefore can be more valuable because people are, you know, have the would have the normal tendency not to be fully transparent with their employer. And so how to glean valuable information out of those is critical. And one way of doing that is just setting that up on a regular basis and, um, you know, reinforcing um, just the anonymous nature of those surveys and the fact that, and also listening to the output, right? And actually taking action against it. I think that's that's critical. And I think in the context of just more of a M&A, um, you know, and aqua hires and things like that, there's various personality tests of, you know, varying degree of sophistication that are out there that, you know, I know a lot of firms, when a P firm wants to, replace the CEO, for instance, um, 
some of the more institutional players would uh, would use that. Uh, you know, a person would literally sit down for three hours with a psychiatrist or a psychologist and go through different aspects, behavioral aspects, which are being added to their overall file. Um, so I think those things are also around, but uh, you know, not necessarily applicable to every situation. And can you talk about the importance of strong communication and collaboration with other departments and stakeholders at Hero or, or, or the other places you've worked? Yeah, so I think that's critical. And it's not rocket science. Sometimes, for whatever reason, we're just hesitant to, to reach out and to set up structures. But, you know, talking through things is oftentimes um, just the most efficient way to get to an outcome. A specific example, for Hero, it's a relatively complex business where there's hardware, there's software, there's services, um, there's a subscription component. And so uh, a critical link between uh, has, for finance has been the partnership with um, operations who are actually in charge of getting, we have a piece of hardware as part of the Hero platform. So they're in charge of getting different parts for that hardware, assembling it, delivering inventory, um, and then ultimately shipping it to the end user. So managing that supply demand dynamic on a weekly basis is critical, especially with, you know, disruptions to this global supply chain, lead times increasing, costs increasing. That that has been a critical collaboration. And similarly, a part of the supply demand um, sort of topic is just the collaboration between marketing and finance. So, So setting proper guardrails for the marketing team on profitable spend, profitable growth spend, so certain LTV to CAC metrics or CAC payback metrics um, that basically create a dynamic forecast for the business and similarly are looked at on a weekly basis uh, with members from both sides. I think it's, it's, um, it's absolutely critical for businesses that have those components. And if our listeners take away just one thing from this conversation, what would you want it to be? I would say that as we're galloping behind um, our pursuits and our goals, realizing that we'll we'll reach them faster in a in a more satisfactory way or satisfying way, if in the process we don't lose sight of our own health and our own well-being. There's a there's a saying that I heard from one of my mentors is that we as business people um, spend half of our health to gain wealth, and then spend half of our wealth to gain back the health. So yeah. So just pondering whether that's an intelligent equation or not <laughs> is uh, what I would leave our audience with. Oh, I love that. Um, lastly, as a finance leader, what keeps you up at night? What is around the corner that that concerns you? 
<clears throat> nothing keeps me up at night. That's good. But what <laughs> during the day, what I'm concerned about is uh, macro uh, fundraising environment and uh, you know unit economics or you know marketing spend efficiency. Emil, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Megan. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you and I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. And I wish you and Kiro all the best. Sounds like you're both doing amazing things. And to all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.